European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 43, Issue 2, Focus Issue, Ischemic Heart Disease, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Hot Topics in Ischemic Heart Disease, Revascularization, Hibernation, Type 2 Infarction, and Proteomics. This focus issue on ischemic heart disease contains the state-of-the-art review article Invasive and Non-Invasive Assessment of Ischemia in Chronic Coronary Syndromes Translating Pathophysiology to Clinical Practice by Ozan Demir and colleagues from King's College London in the United Kingdom. The authors point out that intracoronary physiology testing has emerged as a valuable diagnostic approach in the management of patients with chronic coronary syndrome circumventing limitations such as inferring coronary function from anatomical assessment and low spatial resolution associated with angiography or non-invasive tests. The value of hyperemic translesional pressure ratios to estimate the functional relevance of coronary stenosis is supported by a wealth of prognostic data. The continuing drive to further simplify this approach led to the development of non-hyperemic pressure-based indices. Recent attention has focused on estimating physiology without even measuring coronary pressure. However, the reduction in procedural time and ease of accessibility afforded by these simplifications needs to be counterbalanced against the increasing burden of physiological assumptions, which may impact on the ability to reliably identify an ischemic substrate, the Golgi and catheter laboratory assessment. In that regard, measurement of both coronary pressure and flow enables comprehensive physiological evaluation of both epicardial and microcirculatory components of the vasculature, although widespread adoption has been hampered by perceived technical complexity and, in general, an underappreciation of the role of the microvasculature. In parallel, entirely non-invasive tools have matured, with the utilisation of various techniques, including computational fluid dynamic and quantitative perfusion analysis. This review article appraises the strengths and limitations of each test in investigating myocardial ischemia and discusses a comprehensive algorithm that could be used to obtain a diagnosis in all patients with angina scheduled for coronary angiography, including those who are not found to have obstructive epicardial coronary disease. In another state-of-the-art review article entitled Myocardial Viability Testing all stitched up, or about to be revived. Matthew Ryan and colleagues from King's College London in the United Kingdom note that patients with ischemic left ventricular dysfunction frequently undergo myocardial viability testing. The historical model presumes that those who have extensive areas of dysfunctional yet viable myocardium derive particular benefit from revascularization, while those without extensive viability do not. These suppositions rely on the theory of hibernation and are based on data of low quality. Taking a dogmatic approach may therefore lead to patients being refused appropriate, prognostically important treatment. Recent data from a sub-study of the randomized STITCH trial challenges these historical concepts, as the volume of viable myocardium failed to predict the effectiveness of coronary artery bypass grafting. 
Should the Hart team now abandon viability testing, or are new paradigms needed in the way we interpret viability? This state-of-the-art review critically examines the evidence base for viability testing, focusing on the presumed interaction between viability, functional recovery, revascularization, and prognosis, which underlie the traditional model. The authors consider whether viability should relate solely to dysfunctional myocardium or be considered more broadly and explore wider uses of viability testing outside revascularization decision-making. Finally, they look forward to ongoing and future randomized trials, which will shape evidence-based clinical practice in the future. Whilst the risk factors for type 1 myocardial infarction due to atherosclerotic plaque rupture and thrombosis are established, our understanding of the factors that predispose to type 2 myocardial infarction during acute illness is still emerging. In a clinical research article entitled Risk Factors for Type 1 and Type 2 Myocardial Infarction, Ryan Vareski and colleagues from the University of Edinburgh in the United Kingdom sought to evaluate and compare the risk factors for type 1 and type 2 myocardial infarction. The authors conducted a secondary analysis of a multi-center randomized trial population of greater than 48,000 consecutive patients attending hospital with suspected acute coronary syndrome. The diagnosis of myocardial infarction during the index presentation and all subsequent reattendances was adjudicated according to the universal definition of myocardial infarction. Cox regression was used to identify predictors of future type 1 and type 2 myocardial infarction during a one-year follow-up period. Within one year, 1,331 patients had a subsequent myocardial infarction, with 924 and 407 adjudicated as type 1 and type 2 myocardial infarction, respectively. Risk factors for type 1 and type 2 myocardial infarction were similar, with age, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, abnormal renal function, and known coronary disease predictors for both, P being less than 0.05 for all. Whilst women accounted for a greater population of patients with type 2 as compared with type 1 myocardial infarction, after adjustment for other risk factors, sex was not a predictor of type 2 myocardial events. Adjusted hazard ratio, or AHR, 0.82, 95% confidence interval, or CI, 0.66 to 1.01. The strongest predictor of type 2 myocardial infarction was prior history of type 2 events, AHR 6.18, 95% confidence interval, 4.70 to 8.12. Vareski et al. conclude that risk factors for coronary disease that are associated with type 1 myocardial infarction are also important predictors of type 2 events during acute illness. Treatment of these risk factors may reduce future risk of both type 1 and type 2 myocardial infarction. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Michelle O'Donoghue and Nicholas Marston from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. The authors conclude that the current analysis helps shine a spotlight on an understudied topic, as it's remarkable how little we continue to know about the pathobiology of type 2 myocardial infarction including endothelial dysfunction and microvascular disease. 
risk factor identification and management may ultimately inform on the biology of the disease and lead to better treatment strategies. However, a standardised list of causal risk factors may remain elusive, since type 2 myocardial infarction events will always reflect a heterogeneous and complex disease process. Not dissimilar to what has been observed in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, type 2 myocardial infarction will require rigorous phenotyping in future research efforts in order to capture the broad spectrum of underlying etiologies. The presence or absence of epicardial or microvascular ischemic heart disease, or IHD, will be just one important distinction in type 2 myocardial infarction phenotyping and will play an integral role in the downstream management of these patients. The indications for myocardial revascularizations in patients with chronic coronary syndromes remain controversial. In a clinical research article entitled Effects of Initial Invasive versus Initial Conservative Treatment Strategies on Recurrent and Total Cardiovascular Events in the Ischemia Trial, Jose López Sendon and colleagues from the Hospital Universitario La Paz from Madrid, Spain, indicate that the international study of comparative health effectiveness and medical and invasive approaches, or ischemia trial, pre-specified an analysis to determine whether accounting for recurrent cardiovascular events, in addition to first events, modified understanding of the treatment effects. Patients with stable coronary artery disease, or CAD, and moderate or severe ischemia on stress testing were randomized to either initial invasive, or INV, or initial conservative, or CON, management. The primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, and hospitalization for unstable angina, heart failure, or cardiac arrest. The Goshlin method was used to estimate mean cumulative incidence of total events with death as a competing risk. The 5,179 ischemia patients experienced 670 index events, 318 INV, 352 CON, and 203 recurrent events, 102 INV, 101 CON. A single primary event was observed in 9.8% of INV and 10.8% of CON patients, while greater than or equal to two primary events was observed in 2.5% and 2.8% respectively. Patients with recurrent events were older, had more frequent hypertension, diabetes, prior myocardial infarction or cerebrovascular disease and had more multivessel CAD. The average number of primary endpoint events per 100 patients over four years was 18.2 in INV, 95% CI, 15.8 to 20.9, and 19.7 in CON, 95% CI, 17.5 to 22.2, difference minus 1.5, 95% CI minus 5.0 to 2.0, P equaling 0.398. Comparable results were obtained when all-cause death was substituted for cardiovascular death and when stroke was added as an event. The authors conclude that in stable CAD patients with moderate or severe myocardial ischemia enrolled in ischemia, an initial INV treatment strategy 
did not prevent either net recurrent events or net total events more effectively than an initial CON strategy. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by David Kao and Roxanne Mehran from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, USA, and Carl Pepin from the University of Florida, Gainesville, Florida, USA. The authors highlight that these results underscore the complex pathophysiology of IHD and the difficulty in attempting to assess outcomes in these patients. Critically important is the emerging evidence that IHD is much more complex than simply addressing the obstructive coronary epicardial lesions, and consequently, the methods used to assess outcomes remain problematic. It is now recognized that functional abnormalities of the coronary circulation are highly prevalent. About 20-40% of patients continue to have persisting symptoms after technically successful PCI, probably related to coronary functional issues that include vasospasm and microvascular dysfunction. Biomarkers are playing a growing role in risk stratification in several cardiovascular diseases. In a translational research article entitled Glycosylated Apolipoprotein J in Cardiac Ischemia, Molecular Processing and Circulating Levels in Patients with Acute Ischemic Events, Judith Cubedo and colleagues from the Hospital San Creo y Pau in Barcelona, Spain, note that using proteomics, they previously found that serum levels of glycosylated or glyc forms of apolipoprotein J, or ApoJ, a cytoprotective and antioxidant protein, decrease in early phases of acute myocardial infarction, or AMI. Ubido and colleagues aim to investigate 1. ApoJ-glyc intercellular distribution and secretion during ischemia, 2. The early changes in circulating ApoJ-glyc during AMI, and 3. Associations between ApoJ-glyc and residual ischemic risk post-AMI. ApoJ-glyc was investigated in 1. Cells from different organ stroke tissue origin, 2 a pig model of AMI, 3, de novo AMI patients, N equaling 38, at admission within the first six hours of chest pain onset and without troponin T elevation at presentation, or early AMI, 4, ST elevation myocardial infarction patients, N equaling 212, who were followed up for six months, and 5, a control group without any overt cardiovascular disease, N equaling 144. Inducing stimulated ischemia in isolated cardiac cells resulted in an increased intracellular accumulation of non-glycosylated ApoJ forms. A significant decrease in ApoJ circulating levels was seen 15 minutes after ischemia onset in pigs. ApoJ-glyc levels showed a 45% decrease in early AMI patients compared with non-ischemic patients being less than 0.0001, discriminating the presence of the ischemic event, area under the curve 0.934, P being less than 0.0001. ST elevation myocardial infarction patients with lower ApoJ-glyc levels at admission showed a higher rate of recurrent ischemic events and mortality after six months of follow-up. P equaling 0 
The authors conclude that these results indicate that ischemia induces an intracellular accumulation of non-glycosylated ApoJ and a reduction in ApoJ-glyc secretion. ApoJ-glyc circulating levels are reduced very early after ischemia onset. Its continuous decrease indicates a worsening in the evolution of the acute cardiac event, probably identifying patients with sustained ischemia after AMI. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Christian Newby from the Duke University Medical Center and colleagues. Newby concludes that whether or not development of ApoJ-glyc as a diagnostic biomarker of myocardial ischemia or a prognostic biomarker of acute coronary syndrome will succeed, and if so, for what indication, remains to be determined. However, the results of the well-conducted proof-of-principle translational experiments presented by Kubido and colleagues provide support for continuing to explore its potential clinical role through future studies. More broadly, this work highlights and reaffirms the potential to harness proteomic discovery platforms to identify differentially expressed proteins and protein modifications that occur with disease state transition, in this case onset of acute coronary ischemia, as promising candidates for development of clinically relevant biomarkers. The editors hope that the listeners of this issue of the European Heart Journal will find it of interest.